Well, you can turn to Revelation chapter 8. In case our streaming still isn't working, I've got another alternative way to record this for later. So, pardon me for a minute. Well, again, we've switched uh, Colossians to the morning and Revelation to the evening. Um, again, uh, there's still a lot of information and a lot to process in this book, and um, we are promised a blessing for going through this and giving and seeking understanding and preparing ourselves um, for the end times. But there are parts of this that are difficult to work through, and this is certainly one section because the terrible nature of these judgments that we're going to look at tonight. So buckle up, <laughs> because it's going to be kind of a wild ride tonight as we continue, and this won't be the last of it. But as we saw last week, in the midst of these judgments, which, and oh, I should point out that we do have a chart now. It happens to be behind the lemon's heads. And uh, it's, from what I could tell, I'm looking through it very carefully, it is a very accurate chart based on um, our interpretation of the end time events. I think it'll be, it's helpful to see it in a picture for those of you that really um, are like me, need illustrations from time to time. Um, and it kind of brings it all together. But we are in kind of the middle of the tribulation at this point and getting ready for the second half of the tribulation. And if the tribulation is seven years, which we've seen from Scripture, that's the best interpretation, then the last half of the tribulation is three and a half years. For those of you that like math, that's not too hard to figure out. These last three and a half years will be what's termed in even the Old Testament as the Great Tribulation. It will be the worst part of what's already a terrible time of judgment. And in the midst of this, we saw last week, God's people selectively delivered or protected from the upcoming great tribulation judgments. And uh, God does take care of his own, and we're thankful for that. In the midst of judgment, he gives grace to his people. But now we've gone through six seals and the terrible seventh seal judgment. It will be opened by Christ. And literally the full onslaught of tribulation judgment will begin to be released on the earth. This then is the full judgment that the Old Testament prophesied would happen on the earth. Called it the great day of the Lord and many other things. A specifically horrible time of judgment that God would use. Why would God allow something like this to even happen? To deal with sin and rebellion, and even more specifically, generally sin and rebellion, but more specifically the rebellion of his people, the Jewish people. And what we find, what we're reminded here, folks, is God is holy and just, and he will deal fully with sin in his sovereign timing. And really, he already did, right? Through the terrible sacrifice of his son. But for those that reject that sacrifice there is a terrible time coming and we're going to see that tonight 
And let's let's just be honest. What's one of our, our weak tendencies is we tend to treat sin more lightly than it really is. We tend to look at sin and say, oh, you know, this sin's okay. This, the, the, I mean, this sin isn't nearly as bad as that sin. And we tend to look at the sin in our lives, and we, we, we tend to focus more on the sins of other people and wish they would change. But the sins in our life, well, you know, we're, I'm working on that. It'll, I'm a work in progress. And, and God has grace for that. But, folks, the, these terrible judgments remind us that sin really is terrible. Um, it is direct rebellion and violation against God. And he will deal with it in a full way. And that's what this is all about tonight. The terrible trumpet judgments. And let's just read the first five verses for a starter. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Lord, as we look at these terrible things, these are things that in and of ourselves we wouldn't choose to focus on, and yet you have given them to us in your word. And there is much in your word about judgment, much in the Old Testament. And now the fulfillment of it as John views these things with his own sight and then wrote them down for us. Let this be sobering and a reminder to us, Father, that sin truly is terrible and you will deal with it and it must be eradicated from the earth and from your people thank you that in christ you dealt with it fully and that all we need is to trust in him and that it is fully dealt with and we are your people and we have his righteousness but let us be motivated to tell others for they will feel your full wrath if they don't turn to christ and this is just part of that let us be sobered in this picture for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The terrible trumpet judgments. And we're only going to get through six of them tonight. Um, actually, five. Sorry. But we're going to see God's judgment will bring destruction on the earth. And his judgment deserves our sober reflection. And we have that here literally in heaven for a half an hour. Before these judgments begin, there's a quietness, there's a reflection that something awful and terrible is going to happen. So, the Lamb, in verse 1, now opens the final seal. And the awfulness of the pending judgment that's coming causes silent reflection for 30 whole minutes. And then during these last moments of silence, these other angels, and again, there's a multitude of angels in this heavenly um, courtyard so to speak other angels moved into their assigned positions and get ready to blow seven terrible trumpets that will announce the start of a series of even more terrible judgments another angel comes into view here as we just read and he stands at the heavenly altar of incense to offer further incense and let's look at this again verse one the lamb opened the seventh seal there's silence in heaven 30 minutes 
I saw the seven angels who stand before God. These are seven new angels that have, we've not seen before. They've been there, but we just haven't, John hasn't seen them before. And seven trumpets were given to them. And then another angel came, and he stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And so he is offering up this incense. I think, again, to consider this altar, this altar of incense, probably best uh, thought of, the one that the, the martyred saints were protected underneath. Um, and he is offering in this golden censer where this incense was offered. This was um, in uh, the temple worship, one of those worship things um, that prepared um, people for and prepared the priest for the sacrifices and, and different aspects of worship. It was a definite action of worship. And he does this now. But this incense, again, is special. It is the prayers of the saints. And it says here, all the saints. And certainly, in context, this would have to be the prayers of the martyred ones that are under this altar. They have been praying, crying out for justice. Not for revenge, but that God would wreak justice on his enemies. And now these prayers are about to move God to do exactly this in his timing. But I think as well, this very well could represent the prayers of the saints throughout all history. It says all the saints. All the saints, even today, those of us who have prayed for God's righteousness and justice to prevail. Folks, that's a good prayer to pray. Not that we look forward to this time of judgment, but as we look in our broken world and see the effects of sin, it's good to pray, Lord Jesus, come. And bring your righteousness and your justice and deal with all this brokenness. It's good to be tired of this and want to see God work. And those prayers move and affect in some form or fashion the very timing of all of this. The prayers in the nostrils of God move him to commence the judgment. Look at verse 4. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel, and as he smells the incense in a pictorial sense, you know, obviously uh, thinking of God and, and, and smelling these, there's some symbolism here. But there's two things, even before we go any further with this in application, that I want us to... You know, folks, I think it's good in application for us to take time in our lives regularly where we soberly just reflect on the nature of sin and its influence on our lives and God's holiness and righteousness that moves him to deal with sin. In other words, we need to take time to remember that as we look in our own lives and see our sin and our weakness that we need to repent before God because um, that sin is terrible and it will be dealt with by God in an appropriate manner. He will deal with the sin in our lives, and he will deal with the sin of the world. And we're seeing that in these trumpet judgments, that he will deal in that way. Better for us to take time to reflect upon the sin that hinders us and ask God's help before he has to deal with it in a more direct way. 
better for us to deal with it and repent and give it over to him. We don't take enough time to, to examine our own lives in this way. Doesn't David say, examine and show me my secret faults? That's what we should pray. There's another aspect, though, too, in this aspect of, of prayer. Because we have two sides of the coin again here and two important truths to remember about prayer. And they seem to be con contradictory, really. One is that God's sovereignty and God's control over all events are real. God, in his sovereignty, um, has his own time plan. And even in Revelation, we see this. This is all God, his plan and his workings, and he's in control of all of this. That is true. So what many times is made, what puzzles us and maybe sometimes frustrates us is we think, then what good is prayer? If God's got it all under control anyway, then what good does my prayer do? It doesn't really change things. And I've heard some people describe this. I understand where they're coming from, that prayer then really is just worship to God and submitting to him. And that is certainly an attitude of prayer that we need to have. Um, when we pray, we ought to be submitted to whatever God is going to do. And it ought to be a form of worship. But the Bible does portray the fact that, and, and prayer is portrayed in God's word as really a catalyst for change on the other side of it. This is another illustration that our prayers true, do truly move God and change things. So you might ask, well, Pastor Brock, how do you make those two fit together? I don't. I can't. I can't explain those. But God does. God knows. And so it's our responsibility then is to admit to the reality. Here are the prayers of the saints that rise to God. And this then is the point where God says, now that I have, um, these prayers have come to my attention in, in a symbolic sense. Now the judgments will begin. So folks, take heart. When you pray, God is listening. And prayer will accomplish things because his word. Isn't that, isn't that humbling, the fact that our prayers accomplish and uh, change and move God in this way? We're commanded to pray, and we need to do that. Well, all of this together, then, we have verse 5, really the shotgun start of these judgments described really in terms of worship again with this censer and the incense and all of these things. And the angel fills the censer with fire and he literally flings it to earth. And look what happens here. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And that must have been a terrible earthquake after these um, thunderstorm reactions. For John to take note of that. This truly is an epic start to these terrible judgments. In um, a much more milder illustration here, uh, you probably remember those little firework um, sacks called popums or the bang snaps that you had when you were kids and you'd throw them down. Um, and you know, kids, uh, kids delight in doing that behind their parents' backs or around adults when they're least expecting it, right? And all of a sudden, it kind of surprises you or whatever. Well, I, I have to admit, I had a little bit misunderstanding of how those things were put together. And they're actually, um, they don't cause physical damage. 
um, even if in someone's hands. They were invented all the way back in 1847, so they've been around a while. But I used to think there was gunpowder in those things. Some of them were called TNT, and of course I didn't think there was dynamite in them, but I thought there was a little bit of gunpowder. Well, actually, so I would tell the boys, don't you throw those things in the house. You know, who knows? Might catch some carpet on fire or something. Um, we, the results of that, there's, there's a way to handle those things, and we keep those things outside. Well, I come to find out later, a little bit of research, and there's no gunpowder. It's actually a tiny amount of silver fulminate with coarse sand and gravel twisted into tissue paper. And when the device is thrown, stepped on, or burned, it produces a sharp popping sound. The sand buffers that shock wave. Well, still, throwing it down produces a loud bang. And my point was with our boys, it's not appropriate, in my mind, for you to do that in the house. Well, here is something much more powerful and infinitely more terrifying. As this angel literally flings down this fire from this sensor. And to us, we may think, well, that's not a good place for that. Earth is directly in its path. But folks, in this setting, this is exactly what God intends for this to happen on the very earth that he create, created, on this earth, that these judgments will come, and it will be terrifying. And we must accurately reflect on the rightness of all of this as we continue on. It is right for God to do this and deal with sin. And what a dramatic way to start. And then we see that not only does his judgment deserve sober reflection as we reflect on these things, but his judgment will devastate the earth. And the seven angelic trumpet blowers ready their sequential powerful blast. And really verse 6 kind of sets up a dramatic anticipation of what is to come. Verse 6, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The first angelic trumpet and a terrible precipitation trio of hail, fire. And it does describe this as blood hurled to earth. And we know, we know in a legal sense, when something happens uh, nature-wise to somebody's property or house, what is it called legally? An act of God. Folks, this is truly an act of God as he brings his full wrath upon nature itself. Terrifying and horrible. This will bring great fear to people's hearts as this takes place. And what will be the result? A third of the earth will be charred. Imagine that. And a third of the vegetation eradicated. And that's just the first trumpet. Sobering reality here. All the green grass was burned up, the trees. If you've ever gone out into a meadow and just enjoyed the beauty of God's creation on a sunny day, imagine that a third of that on the earth will be burned up and, and wiped away. Well, the second angel then blows his trumpet. And something, it says here, like a great mountain. Look at it, verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died. 
and a third of the ships were destroyed. What is a great mountain that's burning with fire? Well, this is, I think this is John's best way that John can describe really a comet, a meteor, a comet that is burning. And it's wonderful to see those things when you're at night. I told you that story a while back of the boys and I out at night and watching them across the sky. Oh, that's beautiful. Folks, it's terrifying, though, when that comet is aimed directly at you and the planet you live on. That comet will hit and will burn with fire and will be thrown specifically. It will be directed, aimed at the sea. It will come crashing to earth and pollute the seas, the salt water. And on top of that, the horror of a color of blood that will accentuate this idea of blood. It just accentuates the sense of catastrophe and judgment. And a third of the sea creatures will die. And a third of the earth's sea vessels will be sunk or supernaturally destroyed. You think about that, what that means in modern times. That means warships. It means submarines. You know, Sandy used to, um, work, used to serve on a, on a submarine. You imagine a third of all the earth's submarines and, and warfare vehicles being taken out. But also recreational sailing vehicles and commercial fishing, vehicle, commercial fishing vessels. You know, uh, the uh, lobster, um, uh, what's the, the, the lobster folks, there's a specific name for them that uh, industry, we'll go with that, but there's another name I'm trying to think of. They, they've really been struggling lately, as I've read in the news, concerned that um, their, their fishing and their catch of these lobsters are becoming less and less lucrative. Well, can you imagine what will happen if a third of the commercial fishing vessels all over the world are eradicated and what how that will imp impact the economy did remind me of a story that I read one time and um, it's not humorous but it is kind of um, it's pathetic in what took place but in the late 80s my understanding is on the west coast might have been California there were two little sea lion cubs that were found and they've been stranded on the beaches, and the right and, and so they were taken, and the right experts got involved, and that where it took place, the the community kind of came around, and some people funded for these sea lion cubs to be taken care of, and they nursed them back to health, and there was a day finally when they were healthy enough to go back out. They let them back out into the waters, and I think there was even a band playing and all kinds of hoopla and stuff as these two sea sea lion. Cubs went out into the ocean, and as everybody watched, all of a sudden in horror, a killer whale came right up out of the ocean and gulped down those two sea lion cubs, and it wasn't very happy after that. There was a great sense of loss. Now, don't you smile about that. But the point is, is that if there's a great sense of loss over two sea lion cubs, folks, how about a third of the sea creatures? all over the world being lost. These are terrible times indeed. Well, what's going to happen with the third trumpeter? Well, verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from the heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. 
Another, seems best to think of this as another great meteor, probably the largest one out of all the judgments yet, and it plummets to earth, and now the freshwater sources are polluted as well. And this meteor has a name, Wormwood. What a strange name, not a very cotton, uh, beautiful name, ugly name. Well, it was named for a bitter-tasting plant, and you hear this uh, described in the Old Testament and named. And it was a symbol for divine punishment. This plant could be poisonous under certain conditions and could even bring death. And here represents, remember how God for his people in the Old Testament with the children of Israel, what did he do? He made the bitter waters sweet for his people in the wilderness. And now in judgment, he's going to do the exact opposite. The sweet, fresh water of the earth will be made terribly bitter and people that try to drink it and use it for a source of vitality um, and life can even get sick and die from this. Terrible indeed. A third of the fresh water will end up in this way and will be a terrible judgment for people. Also then, this fourth trumpet, verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. This trumpet ushers forth a terrible darkness that reduces the amount of daylight by a third. And how can these really describing dramatic eclipses of the sun, the moon, and also the stars. And all of these things together, how does this dramatically affect a third of the daylight and a third of, uh, of what we expect during the day of daylight to be able to do things? Well, it doesn't make it clear how it, it's going to affect that, but we can, rest, we can understand that it will in whatever way that God intends. But here's the, the good thing to be remembered about, to be reminded about, folks, and that is that we won't be there. We don't have to stick around to find out how this takes place. I don't have much interest, actually. I'm just glad that I won't be a part of things when it comes to this point. Can you think, really, I was thinking about this, the extent of depression and gloom that people experience in the winter months in our state and in New England in Michigan, you, we all know this, uh, this regular happening, January, February, March are some of the highest um, points of depression for many people. Why? Because it stays darker for longer. That will be multiplied with the added terror that people recognize this is divine judgment and there will be great despair. Isn't it interesting these plagues are rather reminiscent of the Exodus plagues? But as we see here, the plagues of the Exodus, folks, were only a small preview to this time of judgment. It'll be so terrible. Well, it's not over yet. God will judge the earth, but he will also judge the earth dwellers. And his judgment will involve great terror. And look at verse 13. Then I looked and I heard, and that some translations say an eagle, and that seems to be the better translation here in the context, an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. 
We've only had four, and we still have three more, and these last three are the most terrible judgments yet to come. And this eagle is stating that they will be more terrible. Three woes emphasize the greater calamities that will now directly affect the people on the earth. And the swiftness of the eagle represents the swiftness of the terrors that are about to come upon the earth and upon the people. So the terrible fifth trumpet is blown. And we have here, it says, a star fallen from heaven to earth, but he was given the key. It's personalized. Probably better to think of this then, since it's personalized in this way, that it is a heavenly being with the key. Look at uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. A heavenly being that has been given a key by God. He doesn't have the authority to have this key in of himself. Again, the hand of God's in all of this. Somebody had to give him that key. And it was God that allowed him to have it. And he goes down and unlocks an entryway to what's described here as a bottomless pit. Verse 2, he opened the shaft. It's like a tunnel that leads to this terrible place. A bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And again, the light and the sun are all affected. The sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. And this rising temporarily blocks out the daylight and I think probably has to do with air pollution as well. People complain about air pollution, but how about air pollution from a terrible place like this as it rises? And then what comes out of it is even worse. That alone will bring great terror to people. But what comes out of that pit will bring great torment to people, even worse. And as the smoke rises, they see a terrible thing, a great swarm of locusts. But these locusts, these insects are more terrible than what has ever been seen on the earth. Verse 3, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. These locusts come and are equipped in a terrible way. Yes, they're locusts, but they're also given terrible tales of torment that resemble scorpions' tails. And uh, throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Joel, we're told about God's plague of locusts that would come and destroy the earth and the vegetation. Joel um, <clears throat> talks a lot about that, but folks, these locusts aren't coming to focus on the vegetation at this point. In fact, that's already been dealt with in a lot of ways, right? But they're told, don't you even touch or worry about the vegetation. You're here to harm mankind except for those sealed by God for protection that we saw in the last chapter. And as these terrible things take place, don't you think what a testimony of God's people that they're not hurt by these awful monsters with these terrible tales. Uh, as you know, I lived in Miami for a while and had some number of summer jobs uh, to try to make money for college. When my, uh, at that time when my family lived down there and I was working for a construction group and the, the boss was with me one day and we were working on some things and I just happened to, with my work boot, kick over a rock 
and I saw this strange creature with this curled tail. And I went to get look a little closer. I had a good idea that this was a scorpion. I wasn't going to touch it. But my boss immediately came over and he took his boot, his steel-toed boot, and he crushed that thing. He said, you don't want to get anywhere near. That was a small one. They're actually more venomous and more painful if it touches you. And even just reminded of that little tiny scorpion, um, the fear and the concern that it brought to me when I realized what it was. But these scorpions, these locusts with these scorpion tails are not allowed to kill people but only to torment. Because those that small scorpion that I saw, a small child or an elderly person, it would have had enough venom to possibly bring death to those uh, people, those types of people. But these creatures are not allowed to kill people. They're just there to torment. And the sting of these terrible creatures, it says, will be so painful that people will seek to die. But they will not be successful because literally death will flee from them. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, not to kill them. But their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. As a child, I misunderstood so much of what Revelation had to say. And that's one of the reasons it's good for us to go through this to understand these things. One of the things that I thought, and maybe you've heard this, is that if somebody enters into the tribulation that uh, and they reject Christ, that they don't have... Um, the opportunity to be saved or to accept Christ in the tribulation. I don't believe that's true. I don't see anywhere in Scripture. It'll be If, if it was hard for them, if they rejected Christ uh, before the tribulation, once they're in the tribulation, it'll be even harder for them to trust Christ. But I don't think it's impossible. And another um, wrong way of thinking that I had was that people in the tribulation Things would get so bad that they couldn't die. And I had in my, in my child's mind this idea of people trying to torture themselves and do weird things to try to kill themselves, and they couldn't do that. I don't know. I guess some of these movies and things that I saw as a, as a child kind of tormented me about the book of Revelation, but I would think about people trying to kill themselves and not be able to do that. Well, that's not really accurately what's being described here. It's specifically from these terrible creatures that once they get stung, they want to die, and they can't. And folks, if this isn't bad enough, then John gives us their appearance, their horrible appearance, and we find out these are not insects. These are monstrous creatures. Verse 7, In appearance the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. They have swiftness and speed of horses readied with battle armor. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. That's a strange thing. Well, that just means that they would be given victory, crowns of victory for a certain amount of time that they would have success in their mission of torment. God would give them that. And then even more terrible here, verse 8, their hair was like women's hair and their teeth like, oh, well, after the crown of golds, I skipped that part, their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. And these really human faces signify intelligence. They're very intelligent, unlike most insects. 
but this long hair and the teeth of a lion, of a predator cat, these long fangs, what a grotesque and terrifying appearance. And everything about them is meant to terrify the people of the earth. And yet we're not done with this description. They had breastplates, breastplates like the breastplates of iron. And noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Their bodies are as tough as iron, and the noise, a rushing, overwhelming noise of chariots and horses. Uh, we have a place in Maryland where we would go with Leslie's parents on the coast, and they had this uh, movie of these wild ponies that roamed um, the seashores, uh, a place called Assateague, and the, the sound system was really was a really good sound system, and when it had um, the sound of these horses on the move, it literally was so loud, you almost had to plug your ears. I don't know if you've ever been in a theater and it had the sounds of the armies and the horses coming, and they're so loud, it, it's almost it's disturbing. That's how we ought to think of these creatures as they get closer to their victims. Well, what are these, then, in the midst of all this? Because let's, let's be honest, that's not hard. We've never experienced or seen anything like this ever. So it's hard to understand well, how, how do we even comprehend what these are. And so some people have even gone as far, and I have to admit this is creative, that they look at this and say, well, John is give, being given a vision of the future of what things are today. And perhaps what John is seeing is military helicopters equipped with missiles and this is the best way that he can to try to describe this. Well, I think we understand as we look through the specifics of this, this can't be helicopters. This is truly as grotesque as it's depicted. What are these then? The most accurate identity for these hideous creatures is a demonic hordes that have been released for God's purposes from this bottomless pit. <coughs> Those of us, when we study Jude on Wednesday nights, we'll see Jude mentions that a group of fallen angels were uh, locked away in a pit. God has done this, and he will release these now. And they will cause people serious pain. And in the midst of these terrible descriptions, folks, let's remember, this is only for a limited time, and it's for God's purposes. Remember that. But it is terrible. And they have a leader. And his name is destruction. Look at verse 11. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. And some people describe, well, this has to be Satan. But folks, is Satan locked away yet? No, he will be at the end. And, and, and the world will rejoice when that happens. But Satan hasn't been, isn't unlocked at this time. It's not as if he's locked away right now. The Bible is clear that he's prowling as a roaring lion. This is not Satan, but it is a demonic leader that is capable of great destruction, hence his name that means destruction. And these terrible things that take place, and it says that um, people will experience these things, but you know one thing it doesn't say? There's no indication in the midst of this suffering that people will repent and turn back to God hard to believe you think they'd get the message but there's no indication of repentance at all later on we'll see that they curse and they they cry out in pain but they don't repent and turn to god 
You know what I'm reminded of as we finish up here in this awful description of these demonic hordes is so often in our culture today and entertainment especially, the things of Satan and demonic powers are um, portrayed as something beautiful. Um, there's all kinds of shows, you know, about witches and the witch, good witches and how you can trust them and, and even shows about ghosts and about demonic activity and people calling up ghosts, you know, even back in the 60s, right? Casper the Friendly Ghost and all these things. But more so today, there's all kinds of family entertainment that depict the satanic powers and demonic forces as something beautiful and something friendly, right? But John gives us the reality, folks, that demonic activity and these demonic creatures ultimately, yes, at one point they were angels of light, so was Satan. But once they rejected God, they turned ugly and terrible. These are not forces and things to play around with and to think of whimsically um, and to think of as in any case friendly or advantageous towards us. Satan's power and his minions are evil and they're wicked and they're grotesque and there is nothing beautiful about playing around with this kind of thing at all. Verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And as awful as these first trumpets have been, there is still two more to go. Sin and rebellion against God is terrible and evil. And God will act with full wrath in dealing with it. So as we finish up, I think there's a temptation as we look at this to think, God, I know sin is bad, but how could you allow this kind of devastation and evil in these end times? And I think one of the problems is when we see this and think, Lord, isn't that a little rough? Isn't that a little harsh? I think it's because we may have a watered-down, cavalier understanding of how terrible sin really is. Folks, but when we truly see sin as God sees it, we will no longer wonder about his judgments, but we'll plead instead. The real reaction we ought to have is to plead with people to repent of their sin and seek God again so they don't have to go through this judgment. Proclaim the cure for sin which is relationship with Jesus Christ. And that statement then brings us back to the focus of this whole book is Jesus Christ, not even these terrible demonic locusts. But remember, our Savior Jesus Christ in this, and that we won't be here for these things. But you proclaim him so that others won't have to go through this terrible time as well. God's going to deal with sin. You can count on that. Our sin has been dealt with. We need to turn to Christ. Father, as terrible as these depictions are, they should sober us, but they should ready us to keep our focus on Christ. That, that And Lord, remember that you are in control of all these things. You give the keys. You allow these angels to sound the trumpets. You are the one that... Um, that locked away these terrible demonic forces and you're the one that allowed them for a time to come and torment and only for a time and then that time is done and you're done with them. But through these things, help us to remember that you are serious about dealing with sin and that we should repent of the sin in our lives and we should call others to seek repentance as well and turn to Christ. And that is the hope 
in the midst of terrible judgment that we must focus on and help us to do that even this week. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.